Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. So how are you feeling, Doug? I actually feel pretty good. I'm doing pretty well, uh, considering I can't go anywhere, really. I, I go to the market. It's not a big you deal. You go to the stop and shop? I go to the stop and shop. Um, there was a little craziness early on, but uh, things seem to have settled down a little bit. We can still find what we want. Yeah. Not bad. You know, it's interesting. I read something on Twitter today. There's been a lot of discussion here in the UK about panic buying in supermarkets. And someone had a thread on Twitter explaining that supermarket sales have only gone up about 10%. The problem is that with their just-in-time inventory, if people go a little bit more, then the shelves get empty. Then people think there's a problem, and then they go to panic buy. So basically, people including in government, are blaming individuals for a systemic failure of an industry, <laughs> right. right? Yeah. It's true that toilet paper, and that I don't really understand, but people are buying a lot of toilet paper. But if we go to our local supermarket, we have a supermarket three miles away. It's a Waitrose. If you're in the UK, you know what that means. It's kind of like Whole Foods in the States, but without you know the excessive organic stuff, and they don't sell New Age CDs. And if we go there on a Sunday, which we do sometimes, in the afternoon, you'll see plenty of empty shelves for certain things. Imagine that in a cooking show or in a newspaper, there's been a recipe about, I don't know, cooking with ginger. Well, the ginger is going to be sold out. And there are certain things that sell out because they don't have time to restock them when it's busy. Sure. So people are talking about panic buying, but it's not really like that. Uh, just to add a data point, I don't know if I've mentioned on this podcast, but so I live on the edge of a small village next to a farm. My landlord's the farmer. He grows wheat and he grows vegetables. He grows potatoes and broccoli and carrots and things like that. And right next to our house is a little farm shop. It's the size of a garage. It has an honesty box. So you weigh your goods, you tally it up, and you put your money in. And for a few days last week, it was just nonstop traffic. And then yesterday, it started calming down. So I think what happened is people were coming here because they heard about it on Facebook and they're figuring, okay, that way I won't have to go to the supermarket. There's not a great deal of choice, but there's a certain number of fresh vegetables. But now they realize, wow, we bought all those Brussels sprouts. How are we going to eat them now? That's an interesting phenomenon. And the phenomenon that I've been noticing is that with the panic buying of, of toilet paper and there not being enough to go around, people are using other materials because they don't have toilet paper. So maybe they're using paper towels or maybe they're using, uh, you know, wipes or things like that. And so what's been happening is the sewer system in my, in my area is being clogged with unusually high amounts of non-toilet paper paper because people can't get toilet, because people don't have toilet paper. Yeah. Well, and I suspect that people are also probably using a lot of uh, disinfectant wipes and flushing them, but that's not the main problem. I think the other problem is that people just don't have toilet paper, so they just grab the New Yorker and start ripping pages out. But that's not, but that's not a problem. You can use the New York Post to wipe your butt. Oh, you can. Oh. No, you can. And, but I and, don't get the New York Post. But that will degrade in water. The problem is these disinfectant wipes yes. that some of them say that they're biodegradable, but they don't degrade quickly enough. There was a story, what, a year or two ago about a 18-ton fatberg that they took out of the, the sewers right. in London. That's right. So these things, they sort of accumulate and they grow 
So, I mean, newspapers are fine if you have to. I, I, I'm, not, well, I'm not too concerned. What I find interesting is how many people don't have a stock of basic goods under the assumption that you're homesick for a week and you can't go out, right? Yeah. You know, toilet paper, flour, pasta. On the other hand, I, I, I don't understand the panic buying. There's, there's plenty to go around. Who is it? Grime Gran? who is the Twitter sensation there, the UK woman who is telling people uh, to, you know, stop flushing this stuff in very colorful language. <laughs> what we need is news people and, and media people, you know, yelling at us <laughs> because there are people just making the wrong decisions for the wrong reason. You know, it's funny you mention that because obviously different countries are affected in different ways at different levels. Italy and Spain have had a, a large number of cases and a large number of deaths. Yeah. It hasn't hit the UK that much yet. It's starting in the US. So here they closed all the pubs and bars and restaurants. They closed the schools except for uh, children of key workers. Key workers are people like healthcare people, police, etc. And over the weekend, there were these photos of all these people going to the beaches and to the mountains and in the parks and staying really close together. And they're getting to the point here where they're going to have to tell people to stay inside, which is the case, for instance, in France. My son lives in Paris, and it's pretty much a lockdown that you're only able to go out for food and, and medicine. One of the things that's, that's happening is that people are going to remote locations in order to stay remote. But the problem with going to remote locations is there, there isn't a lot of medical assistance in these remote locations. So if you do get sick, exactly, then they have to, you know, either air you out or whatever. They have to locate you or whatever. It's happening in Nantucket. A lot of wealthy people who own homes in Nantucket figured, oh, I'll get remote and go to Nantucket. Well, Nantucket now is uh, considering, you know, shutting the island down because they've had a couple of cases. So it's... Stay yeah. where you are. Stay put. That's the easiest thing to yeah, do. Stay home if you can. If you can. And the problem is, obviously, some people can't afford to. There's a very different situation here where the government is covering 80% of the salary of people who can't go to work because the businesses are closed, as long as the businesses don't fire them. So it, it depends where you are. It's a difficult situation. Anyway, we're here to talk about music. We, we, we were actually going to do another topic that we've had in the can for a few weeks. But I said to Doug this morning, we kind of need to talk about this because since the last episode, it's become a real big issue. How does music play into this? For me, it's simple. Music can calm you down. It can help you concentrate if you're working from home. It can give you some escapist entertainment. It can help you sing and dance to keep you moving at home. Uh, and music is one of the most powerful things we have, so we need to take advantage of it now. A couple of great things happened during my confinement. Um, the Boston band, the very famous Boston band, the Dropkick Murphys, who usually tour uh, most of the year, but they always, on, on St. Patrick's Day, come back to Boston because they're for lack of a better word, a, a punk Irish sea shanty band. <laughs> That's probably the best way to describe them if you've never heard them. But um, they're a lot of fun, and they're Boston's own. And so they couldn't do the St. Patrick's Day party this year, so they just casually mentioned online or something that maybe we could do a webcast. Well, it came together in 24 hours, and on St. Patrick's Day evening, they broadcast live from a, a secret location because they didn't want crazy fans congregating and it was a terrific show they played for two hours they played all the fan favorites and they raised some money for a, a local uh, a local charity they have called uh, the Kalana fund 
And they raised, I think, $53,000, $56,000, something like that, to, to help the people in the community. So it was, it was a lot of fun. And, I, you know, it's something I've always said. I don't know why a lot of bands don't do this on a regular basis on, on a small scale like this. It was terrific. It was, it was intimate. You got to hear them play. You got to see the way they do their show. You got to see them up close. It was as good as any concert. And I'm sure that's the way people felt about it when they were watching because it was, it was set up like that. Sure, it looked kind of like, you know, Ed Sullivan. They were just on stage bouncing around. No crowd. But they played terrifically and, uh, and everybody appreciated it. It was, it was a terrific show. It was a great thing to do. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it was here that we've talked about it, but I, I often mention the theater experience here in the UK where different theaters film and broadcast live theater productions to the cinemas. It's very common. There's at least, I don't know, one or two a month here from the Royal Shakespeare Company, which is near me, from the National Theater in London. And then there are a couple of other companies that do it for sort of theaters here and there that don't do a regular program of it. And for people who can't get to the theater, who can't afford it, it's really a wonderful way. And and what's really interesting is, as you said, you're getting a view of something that's so much more immersive than when you're in a bar or an arena or a stadium. I know the person who produces the Royal Shakespeare Company productions, and so I've been able to go to a number of them when they were filming them for the broadcast to see how it works. And they don't have a lot of cameras. They have, maybe have seven cameras, but they have a wide variety of angles and close-ups and zooms and, and, and tracking shots and all. And it's a really immersive event. Now, you can do the same with a concert. It's not hard. In fact, it's probably easier because you're not focusing on who's talking or whatever. Uh, if you watch Bruce Springsteen on Broadway, that's a really good example of how you can do that and make it so personal, so intimate. It's delightful to see artists play that way. That's the way I like to see music done, played live. That's the one shot you get. And, you know, whether it's improv or whether, you know, they're doing the set of songs that they normally do, their normal set of songs, I don't care. Uh, I don't get out to see bands live much anymore. And I would pay good money to have like a subscription, for instance, to see a band do shows. You know, the, we talked a little bit about the Aerosmith shows in Las Vegas, which would have been a perfect opportunity to sell satellite or on-demand or a live show. Like every Thursday is a live show that people on the internet can watch. Pay 20 bucks or 30 bucks or 40 bucks, whatever it is. And, like, and they make it a special show, for, you know, because it's, that's that much more large, uh, larger of an audience, uh, that much more spectacular. Uh, I, th I really think that there's a lot to be happening there. And this opportunity, if you will, yeah. is maybe when we'll start seeing things like this happen. Yeah, it's true. The thing is to do these, you need to be doing them in small venues. You need to keep the crowd out of the way. So when I've seen these at the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal Shakespeare Company has what's called a thrust stage. So the audience is on three sides. So they have people in the first four rows on the sides, but not behind them because there's cameras there. And in the front, they have about half of the front with audience members and the other half with no seat because they have a camera on a boom. So the cameras need to move around. But it's not hard to do that in a small venue for any sort of band. You, you know, you see bands like like the Dead and Company, right? So they did a free... I actually, I actually did. I saw that the other night. Right. But that's in a big stadium, and the cameras are far away, and you don't get cameras close to the stage, the same thing that you would get in a small venue. Think of think of your normal two or 3,000-seat theater, where you could have cameras really close. 
where you'd get more intimacy. Think of when the MTV acoustic shows, right? I was remembering the um, the shows we used to see in the original um, in-concert programs that used to be on the ABC network when I was a teenager. They would send out, like, you know, these camera crew, this, this five-camera crew, and they would just videotape the bands as they were playing. If they got in the way, they got in the way, but it, it was... You could tell you were right there on the stage with them. And they did that a lot. Not like Midnight Special, where they did it in a studio. This show went actually to where the performances were. Right. And um, I, I, it, it was a great way to watch bands play, but you just don't see that much anymore. Right now, if you go to YouTube and watch anything, it's usually someone shot it on an iPhone. Well, or that there are bands that make films like the Rolling Stones or whatever. Do you remember the Rolling Stones came out with that set called Four Flicks a few years ago? There was a stadium show, an arena show, and then a show at the Olympia in Paris, which is a, I think, a three or four thousand seat theater. And uh, this was obviously multi-camera setups and and all organized and over over multiple nights for each one. It was produced and directed as a live show, unlike. I'm thinking in the 90s, you'd get these videos of bands playing concerts and you'd have three cameras, right? Maybe you're at Red Rocks or something, nice venue, and you got three cameras and they're not really interesting. This is It's an art to produce this sort of stuff. Bruce Springsteen solo, okay, you're going to have two or three cameras at most, but when you've got a band, you want this to be interesting. Look at some classical concerts when they're filmed, and a lot of classical concerts are filmed. It could be the most boring thing in the world, but what I really find interesting is the director who's working with the editing for all of this, when he switches to the view of the guy on the clarinet when the clarinet starts playing, and that gives you a different appreciation of what the music is like. Yeah, they've got the score in front of them. I was always amazed by that, that they knew where they could read a score, for one thing, and you know, uh, and they know that there's a clarinet solo coming up in five five, four, three, two, one bars. So they, you know, they set up the camera shots and all that. And that's, that was one of the captivating things when they used to broadcast um, the Pops or the Boston, uh, the Boston Symphony and things like that, or, or Leonard Bernstein when I was a kid. Just the, the, fa the fascination of knowing that they were going to show you the important instruments because we were into it. You know, we were, we liked, yeah. we wanted to You're know. A musical family. Yeah, we yeah. wanted to see, you know, how they make that thing go. And uh, so that was always a delight. So, yeah, you're right. It's, it could be done. And I wonder if it's just too expensive to do it just on, on a limited basis. Well, it wouldn't be if they did it in small places, would it? Well, so when the production company comes here for the Royal Shakespeare Company, they have two semi-trailers. One of them's carrying the gear and the other one's got the studio in it. So there's a, I'm going to say there's a crew of about a dozen people. It's not a huge crew, although maybe 15 people altogether. Uh, there's a certain amount of money. Uh, now, of course, they're doing live via satellite. So it's interesting how they do this. They do a camera rehearsal a week before, and the camera rehearsal is used with a preliminary shooting plan, and then the director goes over it and decides what he's going to change. But when they start doing the live production, they start running the camera rehearsal in case anything goes wrong, so they can just switch to the camera rehearsal feed. 
And that way, even if there's a problem, which it has happened a couple of times with theaters here, but they've got that backup that they can use. And they use the both of them when they then edit them together for DVD and Blu-ray. Because, see, they're thinking the long-term process. And what you're talking about with rock bands, they could also sell these on DVD and Blu-ray. Sure. Or on the streaming services. I'm even suggesting that they do it as low-tech as possible. Use a few GoPro cameras, a total DIY approach rather than any kind of huge, glamorous, uh, robust, um, big broadcast thing, go really low and, and see what happens. Because, I mean, small... You know, today, you could shoot on a bunch of iPhones. Yeah. If you can get the data together to, to a, a video mixing table, you could shoot on a bunch of iPhones on tripods, and it won't look low budget. No, it wouldn't. No, it wouldn't look low budget at all. So, it's, I mean, GoPros are only if people were moving around, and then you get that sort of handheld camera look, which is kind of, well, you know, disturbing all, after all a while. All I'm saying is, you know, do it on the cheap, and... And work from there rather than say, let's do a big TV show. It's like, let's, it's more like, let's put on a show, you know, in the barn. Well, but what's interesting is that there are production companies who know how to do this and they can give you the whole package, you know, with professionals behind it. So if the band, okay, if it's a small local band, that's one thing. But if the band is big enough, you know, a mid-level touring band, they can get a production company to come in, sort of do, do the whole thing from A to Z. In the classical music world, uh, this is surprisingly common that they film things because there is a market over here for sort of arts TV channels where they'll show concerts and operas and ballets. The Berlin Philharmonic has, when they built their new concert hall, this may go back 10 years, they built the cameras into the hall. Ah. So they've got a whole set of cameras and microphones and everything's there, and they've got the studio up in the back. So they don't even have to—it's not even visible when you're in there. I'll put a link in the show notes. I think they're offering free access to their entire archive for 30 days. For other classical streaming, I'll put a link in the show notes to Alex Ross's website, where he's been listing all these classical musicians who've been doing live streams on, like, Periscope and Facebook. Terrific. Get a good mic, though. Well, they're not good. So this is more This is more for the community element. There's one guy, Igor Levitt, I think he's doing it off an iPhone that he puts on a tripod facing his, cam- facing his piano. So the sound quality isn't there, but you're doing it because this is a thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's an event. People are sharing this in their own way, even though they're socially isolated. I just, I just think you can, if you're John Legend, you don't use a MacBook. You know, you get a mic and put it on, mic up the piano, for goodness sake, if you do that. Um, speaking of DIY, there is a guy here in my town, Boston. His name is TJ Connolly. He's also, he listens to our show. I didn't tell you that earlier. He's, he's listens to the really? podcast. Yeah, he's a good dude. Well, hi, TJ. Nice to have you as a listener. And he is famous in Boston for being a, a great DJ. He does the music at Patriots games. He does the music at Red Sox games. And I believe he does the music at the Bruins games. And he may even do them at the Celtics, but I'm not sure. I think they have a different thing going. But anyway... He um, is out of work because he can't DJ any parties. He can't DJ any sporting events. So he's decided to stream some music. That's his contribution to, uh, to, to help out at, in these troubling times. And so he's created a stream called Uncertain Times, and we'll have a link to it. He's on every day for a couple of hours at 10 a.m. Eastern time. And it has a great college radio because he used to be on college radio, and so that's the sensibility that he has for his mixes. 
And he doesn't, he plays a lot of great rock. He plays a lot of local rock. It's just a fun little show to listen to. He's building it as he goes along. Now, he has to license this music. So if you do listen, kick in some yeah, money. That's because, you know, see, the irony is, the, the irony, the catch 22 is the more listeners he gets, the more money he has to pay. So he's the pay. more he's yeah. got, and he doesn't want to turn it into a huge commercial venture, I don't think. I think he just wants to do it for the, the DIY fun of it. And for the community aspect of it. And it's really a, a terrific thing. And I've been vicariously getting thrilled from it because of he's building his own radio station. And uh, it's a thrilling little thing. And he's doing it at home with the gear that he's got. He uses Audio Hijack and probably a couple of old CD players and some <laughs> old disc jockey software or whatever he's doing. And he's putting it together and he's having fun doing it. And, and I think people listening to it are, are having fun having hear, hearing him do it. You know, before the show, you were mentioning this to me, that the, this person was a DJ at boarding events. And I was like, what does he do, play the organ? Because <laughs> it, it's that long that I haven't been to a sporting event, a professional sporting or event. Or seen one. Well, I guess I've, you haven't I've seen, seen one either. Well, I guess. So I don't really see American sports here on TV. Mm. I watch the Tour de France. Every once in a while, I watch tennis. Tennis, it's more like, shh, they don't want music at all. Right. But the idea that it's changed so much, and, and you were saying that it's like it's all rock in these things, and it just doesn't seem to me that sporting events should have a, a recognizable soundtrack like that, other than the classic organ riffs. Well, you know, I watch a lot of football, and the there's a there's a... It's like maybe 15 songs that the NFL uses every year at all the stadiums. And you always hear the same songs over and over again before there's a kickoff or when there's a touchdown or you know, any number of, of, of opportunities. And also when there are commercial breaks, there is music played to, to entertain the, uh, the crowd while there are these long network commercial breaks. So, and it's a big part of it. But anyway, it's not even just where the, the sports are played. It's the whole sports industry. I mean, if you watch ESPN or if you watch any any sporting network, all of there's tons of modern music in it: hip hop, rock, everything. Yeah. See, I just don't. Not organ music. I just don't know that stuff. Uh, I'm just yeah, so out of touch. I'm sorry. Now it's a not perfect opportunity to catch up. They're playing a lot. They're running a lot of old sporting events <laughs> that you can watch now. Is that? I was wondering what ESPN's going to do. Yeah. Is that what they're doing? Putting on like classic Super Bowls I, I, and I believe so. Yeah, golf tournaments from the forties. Yesterday, and... I watched uh, a great uh, golf tournament from from two thousand eighteen uh, with with a terrific uh, ending, and it was from it was just as exciting as they ran it in real time. It was just as exciting as watching it in real time because they were running it back in real time. So why not? Hey, if you just don't remember who won, then. Right. If you don't remember, and you might not. What they should be doing now is they should be doing things like cricket in the States. Sure. Give people something they don't understand that they can get into, you know, 10 years ago or whatever, classic Ashes confrontations between uh, England and Australia. Yeah. Get people to learn, explain it, get them involved. I mean, because cricket matches, the big test matches, they last three days, so that'll keep you busy for a long time. Yeah, I, that's actually an interesting idea. That could, you, I'll bet you could get a lot of American cricket fans developed with something like that well they would there's a sport there was an article in the new york times a few months ago about this really weird sport it looks like something we played in playgrounds when we were kids and it, it's popular in india and pakistan and countries like that and it's something like imagine i'm thinking it's four or five i'll have to find the article in the new york times and link to it i can't even remember what it's called imagine like four or five people on each team and there's a small like smaller than a basketball court, and they kind of have to run across the line in the middle and get back without being tagged or something. Is that a Levio? 
That's, that's what we used to call allevio. You well, had to capture members of the other team, and they would be put into a jail. It's similar to that, but this is really popular on TV and in person, in, in India at least. And it, it, the article was essentially about how some company decided to market this. And, you know, the way all American sports is now and everyone comes on and there's a cheering and the theme music and the close-ups of them looking at the camera, crossing their arms, that kind of sure, thing. Sure, right. Yeah. But yeah. apparently it's a hugely popular thing. There's tons of sports we don't know about. I'm surprised that they don't have darts in the States. Uh, that, that Highlight. Now is Highlight's moment but to see, come back. It, that's like saying this is the year of Linux on the desktop. As as long <laughs> as far long ago as when I was in my early twenties, Highlight was a thing. In fact, you can bet on it, right? Yeah. That's why. Yeah, yeah. We had a fronton in Rhode Island in Newport. There was a Highlight fronton. <laughs> well, you're surprised I know fronton. I've been to some Highlight matches. Okay, it's pretty exciting. Okay, yeah. I never have, um, but I, I had seen it. Anyway, there are plenty of sports that they could put on, like tiddlywinks, <laughs> marbles. Competitive uh, no, marbles. I don't know if I could deal with that. I'm, I'm, I, I lean more towards the cricket. It has a little more, has more stuff you can yell and scream about. What are you going to do when you you miss a marble? There's no, there's no discussion. There's no uh, style. There's no. It depends. It depends on it. depends on whether you're betting on the game. Oh well, I suppose you. I suppose. You I mean, look, look how popular poker is yeah, on TV. What could be less interesting than poker? Right. right? Watching people play poker is. Right. Pretty boring. Well, yeah, that's what yeah, I mean. Yeah. I can't imagine yeah. wanting to sit through that. But I guess you have to because you're probably betting on the game, the poker game that you're watching. Yeah. See, I don't understand any of this. Right? <laughs> it's all yeah. it's a mess. Okay. Mess. I just want to give a quick plug for anyone who's working at home who's never worked at home before. Unlike me and Doug, I've been doing it 25 years. You, how long? Well, easily 20 yeah, so we've been socially distant for a long time, and we're used to it. My colleague Glenn Fleischman wrote a book for Take Control Books, which is where I've published books. He wrote this book called Take Control of Working from Home Temporarily. It is a 62-page book. It's already in its third update. He wrote it in a week. He put up an outline on the web. A half dozen of us contributed to it, and he pushed it out. It's absolutely free, 100% free. Go to TakeControlBooks.com. There'll be a link in the show notes. If you've never worked at home before and you have to now, this has an extraordinary range of tips, things that Doug and I all know about. Pace yourself. You don't need to wear anything other than pajamas. You get to eat at home. You get to hang out with your cats, all that good stuff. Yeah, there is a lot of good stuff about being home. Nothing yep. to be frightened of. <laughs> no. Okay, do we have next tracks this week? Yeah. All right. Shall I go first? Sure. Okay. This week I've got a new album called Mixing Colors by Roger Eno and Brian Eno. I think everyone listening to this podcast has heard of Brian Eno, but they might not know that his brother is also a musician. This is a collaboration that they've been working on over 15 years. Roger Eno is a pianist, keyboard player, and he would improvise on a MIDI keyboard, and he would send some sketches to Brian. And Brian would take the ones that were interesting, and he would do his Enoing to them. He would choose which instruments they'd sound like, he'd, he'd add effects, he'd add coloring, shimmering, and, and all of that. When it came out, I messaged Doug, and I mentioned, he said, is it good? I said, it's nice. And it's nice. It doesn't have the intriguing musical character of a Brian Eno album. It's not as melodic as, say, Harold Budd on piano, but it's a nice album. It's an attractive album. It's 75 minutes long, which is really good for if you're working and you need something to calm yourself down or if you want to take a nap. 
I wish it was a little bit better musically. It's like the production exceeds the musicality of the album. What's interesting is that this record is on Deutsche Grammophon, the classical record label, which is the first time that, well, any Eno's been on Deutsche Grammophon. I wonder if this means that Brian Eno's going that way. He's been on a variety of labels over the years. Uh, Deutsche Grammophon has been putting a lot of money behind these sort of what they call neoclassical composers. People like Max Richter, for instance, who did this eight-hour thing called Sleep. In fact, Mixing Colors reminds me a lot of Sleep. The melodies are relatively simple. There's nothing that makes you think too much in the melodies. Anyway, 75 minutes, links in the show notes, nice music. Doug. I agree. You recommended it. I, I, I enjoyed it very much. It is exactly like you say. It's nice to have in the background. Very soothing. Another recommendation I got recently was from my wife. It's funny because... My wife and I don't really have similar tastes, but we do. Have, there is a Venn diagram where our tastes do come together, and it's kind of fun. And when she's at work, she listens to music, but I don't know what she's listening to. Well, now that she's at home working, every so often she'll hear something, and she'll text me, listen to this, listen to this. And one of the things she texted me was, uh, uh, I don't even remember the name of the song, but it was a band called Freak Power. I'm like, Freak Power, I remember them, but I don't. So I listened to the re I listened to the song, and then I listened to the album, and then I listened to the other two albums because Freak Power is made up of Norman Cook, who is Fatboy Slim, and a couple of other guys, uh, a couple of other multi instrumentalists. I don't know them very well, but it's really a uh, really fascinating um, acid jazz. But it was comfortable and relaxing. It's not overly funky. It's not overly soulful. It's got some nice rhythms in it. It's, it's, it's kind of got that quirkiness of, of fat boy that, you know, is that quirky sense of humor that he has. But on the other hand, a lot of it is just very soothing and romantic. Uh, it's really great stuff. Now, my wife did not know that this was fat boy slim in the band, which is kind of funny because he is one of our favorite people, but she picked right up on it. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to recommend any album or all albums by Freak Power. They're a great 90s band, and uh, uh, I'd never heard of them until recently, and I'm just overwhelmed how, how delicious uh, every single track on all three albums is. This was episode number 172 of the next track, and for posterity's sake, I also want to note that this episode was recorded on Monday, March 23rd, 2020. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments on any episode are always welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell your friends about us on the social media thing. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.